We stand in absolute confidence, Lord, that you do work all things together for our good. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much, worship team. It is good to be together in the house of the Lord. Uh, My message this morning is talking about briefly about what is taking place in our world that I wish I had some concentrated lemonade or concentrated juice or something like that for this reason, because God's word is living and powerful. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. Amen. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart of man. God's word is powerful when you take it in its undiluted form. But just like concentrated juice, what happens if you put the concentrate in the bottom of that jar and you start to add water? The more water that you add, what happens? It gets diluted. Well, there is a flood of information and news. There is so much things that are taking place right now that is just flooding people, overwhelming with the amounts of information, whether it's scandals, corruption, you name it, uh, sickness going on. Uh, there is just so much. It's like this flood of things that is taking place. And part of the purpose of that is to try to dilute the power of God's word in your heart and my heart. I am very aware of all the inconsistencies and not all of many of the inconsistencies and contradictions that we hear in the news of what is going on and the corruption. And that is causing an an exasperation in the hearts of people. But I want to tell you, there is nothing new under the sun. What has simply happened is there is an uncovering taking place of what has always been there. There's nothing new. All that we have is the Internet and things come to the light quicker. But it's like the lid is being lifted to reveal simply what has always been there from the very beginning. Whenever man is in power, whenever man is ruling, there is going to be corruption. And so I want to encourage you with that to consider the world in which the disciples were disciples 2,000 years ago. It was not an American culture. It was not a culture that enjoyed freedom and liberty as we do. It was a, a dictatorial culture and environment, the country that they were living in, the place with the Roman government. And so if we look at their society and culture in which the gospel was given, we realize, Lord, uh, the word of God, it was working. It was effective for them. And so what I see happening is there is an, a battle, a war that is raging against the sufficiency of God's word in the life of the people. What do I mean by this is with all the troubles that we have going on, that there is a calling into question, maybe subtly, subconsciously of, of, you know what, we have all these real issues, real problems. We need to set, you know, we got to deal with the real issues of life, whether social justice or the political corruption, or there's an election coming up and all these things. Those are the real things that are really mattering in this life. And people spend their time consumed in those things. But yet the Apostle Paul and the disciples, they had God's living word and they changed the world. They turned the world upside down because they had God's word, not mixed, not diluted in its full form, unconstant, undiluted. Does that make sense? If you were to take that lemonade, that uh, awful sugary lemonade in its concentrate form and you put it in your mouth with no water, it would be like, pucker up, (laughs) like, whoa, it'd be like horrible. Well, God's word, when you take it at face value, it is absolutely powerful. And so uh, for time's sake, I'm not sure how long, how much I'll be able to get through tonight, this morning, tonight. I did sleep last night. Taking God's word at face value, I am, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I was, I was thinking about poss- possibly holding off on this, but um, in taking God's word in its undiluted form, because this is not very much talked about in, in our world in a sense, but I want to talk about the judgment to come. And I don't want you to quickly tune out and check out like, oh, man, this is going to be a bummer. No, because if we don't understand or remind ourselves that there is a coming judgment of this world, it weakens and diminishes our faith 
What do I mean by that? Well, the love of God, the grace of God has been, in a sense, rightly emphasized, encouraged. We need to know that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, there's very little talk about the coming judgment to come. It says in the book of Proverbs, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, but by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. There's no fear of the Lord in our society, very little, except for in true believers in Jesus Christ. And so we see this casting off of all restraint, running off into sin, just gross sin, just all the mayhem and the anarchy, the lawlessness that we see in this society is the fruit of a no fear of God. There is no thought of the judgment to come whatsoever. And so for the believer, not where I'm saying we should get up and shout and yell and scream at people that, oh, God's going to judge you. No, the judgment of God is meant to bring a comfort to the believers. Why? Because knowing that God is going to, at the very end of human history, he is going to deal with everything and bring to light that which is hidden and covered. It brings a comfort in my heart knowing that, Lord, I don't have to take all this on myself to fix all the evils of this world because I know that someday all of humanity is going to stand before Almighty God. All of humanity is going to stand before Almighty God. Psalms 37, many people turn to the Psalms for comfort and encouragement, rightfully so. But Psalms 37 is one I think that if you were to read it, uh, I'm not going to read the whole Psalm this morning. I encourage you to read it, but it is very applicable for today as all of God's word is. But this is a psalm of David, Psalms chapter 37, verse 1. He says, To fret not yourself because of evildoers, neither be envious against the workers of iniquity. Why? For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Gary, is that you again? (laughs) Don't fret because of evildoers. Who would be honest to say that when you see what's on the news that it's been easy to fret the last couple of months? Be honest. I got my hand up. What's that fret? Almost like anger. Like, I mean, you just see your country being torn to pieces. People burning the flag. Saw a couple of days ago. Now they're burning the Bible. What does that have to do with social justice? Uh, I'll get into that later someday in another sermon. It has nothing to do with social justice. It has to do with destroying this nation in order to bring in socialism and communism. But here you see in the trampling of everything that is precious and dear in this country. And here David says, fret not because of evildoers. Why? Don't be envious either of the workers of iniquity. Iniquity in the Bible is lawlessness. Lawlessness. Why? Because they will soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, do good, so you shall dwell in the land, and verily you shall be fed. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto him, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Verse 7, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself in any wise to do evil. Why? For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the land for yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, you shall diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. The psalm goes on and on, giving many uh, references to, hey, don't fret, don't be angry, trust in the Lord, do good, be faithful to the Lord, you will be rewarded. Those who are doing evil, those who are uh, following after iniquity and lawlessness, they are going to be cut off. Their day is coming. It's spoken quite dramatically in the book of Psalms chapter 5. Psalms chapter 5, because sometimes there's a disconnect again, because those who only hear about God's love for this world, and they see all the chaos, like, wait a second, does God love what's happening? No, God hates what's happening when he sees the lawlessness and the chaos here. Psalms chapter 5, verse 1. Psalms chapter 5, verse 1, another psalm of David. Uh, this song in the 70s, I believe, was put to, uh, to music. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my meditation. 
Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning, while I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. That's where the song ends, but let's continue reading verse 4. For you are not a God that has pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You will destroy them that speak leasing or lying falsehood, for the Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me... I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, and in your fear will I worship toward your holy temple. Can you imagine if we were singing a song, and we were just adding verses, for you are not a God that has pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with you, for you hate all the workers of iniquity. Can you imagine the disconnect? Like, people would be like, like, what? (laughs) But this isn't the Bible. For I am the Lord, God says, he changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so why am I bringing up this topic? Because the judgment of God that is coming is meant to be a comfort for the believer. Because there is so much injustice in this world and things that are taking place, so much corruption that you could literally spend your life, wasting your life, trying to read the latest scandal, all the news, and to see how horrible this world is. When that is not what God has called you to do, God has called you to hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has called you to abide and remain in God's word. Does that mean that we're ignorant of what happens? No. John the Baptist, why was he beheaded? Why was he beheaded? He had his head literally cut off. Who can tell me? I don't usually have Q&A on a Sunday morning, but who remembers? Why was John the Baptist, why did he lose his head? Yeah, what was he doing wrong? He was married to his brother's wife. And she was ticked off at him. How dare John the Baptist tell me that I am not supposed to be married to Herod. He needs to mind his own business. This is a personal affair. But John the Baptist had the audacity to say, Herod, it's not lawful for you to be married to your brother's wife. You're living in adultery gets sent to prison. There he is in prison. And here you have Herod's daughter, a beautiful girl, and she dances before Herod, and he foolishly says, hey, ask me whatever you want up to half my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. And she goes back to her mom, the one that Herod's married to, then adultery. What should I ask Herod for? Uh, tell him I want John the Baptist had in a plate. Where are you, God? Doesn't that seem a little bit wrong to you? Doesn't that like chafe against you? Like, wait a second, we just sung about the way maker, miracle worker, the God who makes a way and he just does everything well and right and perfect. And here John the Baptist, who was Jesus's testimony of him among those who are born among women, there is none greater than John. There should be no doubt whatsoever that he was living a life that was pleasing and righteous before God. And yet in this world, how unrighteous was it of him to have his head lobbed off because of the whims of some woman? Because she hated him because he had the audacity to say, you know what? You're living in adultery. Repent. Off with the head. He has a great reward coming. And there is coming a day when Herod... He's going to be resurrected. We'll get to that maybe later. And he's going to have to stand and give an account to Almighty God for those decisions and choices. His whole life is going to be measured, sized up, so to say, weighed in the balances. And so that single act of incredible, horrible injustice, cutting off his head, uh, he's got a price coming for him for all eternity. Fret not, because of evildoers. Neither be envious against the workers of iniquity. Why? For they shall soon be cut off. In Psalms chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, this is the book of Psalms. It's like the songs that the children of Israel would sing to the Lord. Psalms chapter 7, another one of David. He's praying to God, and maybe he just finished watching the news. It's, oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. 
but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, with the wicked is in parentheses. That means it wasn't in the Hebrew, but this is exactly what it means. I looked at even New Living Translation, which is one of the nicer translations, if there's such a thing. And it says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Can you imagine again up on the screen? God is angry with the wicked every day. He shall judge them too. Like, they'd be like, that church is whacked out. Who are you to judge me? Well, let's, let's get into this. This is in the Bible. Proverbs 16, verse 4 through 6. Because, again, the Christian faith doesn't make sense to people. To some people, they think the Christian faith is put your head in the sand, pretend all your problems aren't there, and just believe enough and they'll all go away. No, the Christian faith faces reality and it states reality for what it is in all of its ugliness. When Jesus was telling his disciples, hey, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He had just told them, John 13, hey, guys, I'm getting ready to die and leave this world. And they were just troubled. They were distressed because Jesus, their Messiah, he was just telling them he's going to die and he's going to leave them. And they're like, how could you leave me, Lord? And so the Christian faith doesn't ignore reality because in John 16, he says, hey, hey, in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble, guys, but be of good cheer because I have overcome this world. The Christian faith is not an inoculation, a vaccination from problems. It is rather that God will carry us through those problems and those difficulties. Proverbs 16:4. God in his word, this God of love, he doesn't sweep evil under the rug and just pretend it doesn't exist. He doesn't ask you to do so either. No, he shines the light of his holiness and all the ugliness of this world and he says, this is what it is and this is how God views it verse 4 the Lord has made all things for himself yea even the wicked for the day of evil everyone everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord though hand join in hand he shall not be unpunished I already read verse 6 by mercy and truth iniquity is purged but by the fear of the Lord men Depart from evil. Every person who is proud in heart is an abomination to God. Why did Satan fall? Why did Adam and Eve fall? It was pride. Pride, arrogance, self, just puffing up self in their mind, their own ways, their own estimation of themselves. And so here, how does God view humanity? Well, yes, Jesus, he loves this world in the sense that he wants to save us and he wants to rescue us out of this world. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 through 14. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 through 14. Actually, verse 19 through 21 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. How did the Christian church 2,000 years ago turn this world upside down? How did they turn the course of history for the better? It wasn't because Christians avenged themselves. No, they took the teachings of Jesus to heart that he says, hey, if you got some guy who's going to compel you to go a, go a mile with him, don't go just one, go two. If somebody wants to take your shirt, give him your coat also. Why? Because if you only give what he is asking of you, he has power over you, the control over you, and you're going to do it begrudgingly. But when you finish that first mile, you say, you know what? I just finished what you asked me to do. Now I'm going to go the second mile, and I'm going to do it of my own free will. Who on earth does that but a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit? Who on earth would be willing to say, all right, you want my, my shirt? Oh, I'm not just going to give you my shirt. Here's my coat also. Who in this room there, who in their right mind does that but a Christian who realizes, you know what? 
If I overcome evil with good and I show love to my enemy and I bless them, I pray for them, I try to do good to them in hopes that they someday will be saved as I share the gospel with them. If they don't get saved, every injustice, what does God say? Hey, dearly beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Is God able to make sure that vengeance is paid out if he needs to? I will say, I don't wish for vengeance. I don't wish for judgment upon anybody. Nobody. We want people to be saved, delivered, and set free. But if we ignore this issue that there is coming a judgment of this world, this this country is going to go to hell in a handbasket. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. The judgment of God was a comfort for the believers in the early church, and it ought to be for us as well if you're living for Jesus. If you're not living for Jesus, it's a fearful thing. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Give you just a moment if you're there. Say amen. It says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith is growing exceedingly. And the charity or love of every one of you towards each other is abounding so that we ourselves are glorying or rejoicing in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense or to repay tribulation to those that trouble you. This early church in verse 4, he was boasting about them, saying, you are doing a fabulous job. Your patience and faith that you demonstrate in the midst of persecution and tribulation, verse 5 gives evidence of the manifest, it's a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that we would be counted worthy of his kingdom for which we suffer. What does that mean? When God, there's a great resurrection, the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody stands before God. And then you have the righteous who suffered persecution. Think of those in China or those in the Middle East and Muslim nations who are enduring great persecution for their faith. And God reveals their works, what they suffered, and how they held on to their faith in the midst of that suffering. It validates the authenticity of their faith. That you know what? That's the real deal. That is genuine. And when they hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, even the wicked will know. The wicked will know. You know what? Yep. They didn't earn it, so to say, but they deserve it because their faith was authentic. It wasn't a fake faith. It's a righteous thing with God to recompense, to repay tribulation to those who trouble you. This is Paul's comforting words to the early church. And to you, verse 7, who are troubled. Is anybody troubled in this world? Got a few hands. Rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all those that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Therefore also we pray that God, we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, he encourages them, hey, if you're troubled, I want you to rest. Fret not because of evildoers. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And when Jesus Christ returns, I don't care what riots or protests are taken in this country. It's going to be bad news for those who are practicing lawlessness and iniquity for those who are not following the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say that? That's... That's, that's reality, church. 
he encouraged them, take comfort. Jesus is coming. When you see evil abounding, lawlessness abounding, and it angers you, it irritates you, it frustrates you, it breaks your heart, you see all that has been worked for for so many years just being thrown down the toilet, so to say, they're not going to get away with it. And does that mean that righteous men should do nothing? There's not a place for government? Oh, there's a place for government, and if government would do what it's supposed to do, there would be an end to all this nonsense. I will tell you, I wholeheartedly, absolutely believe in eternal, endless punishment as much as I believe in eternal, endless bliss for the believer. Eternal punishment for the unjust, eternal bliss and happiness for the believer. Charles Finney, uh, old revival preacher, he says this, that precepts or commands without a sanction or punishment are only counsel and advice and not law. Unless the sanctions are endless, they are virtually or really they're not a penalty at all. What does that mean? A, pen, a precept, a law that doesn't carry any penalty is not a law. It is rather simply counsel and advice. And we see that happening in our nation when the law is being disregarded. You have people who are committing crimes, and what happens? It's like a revolving door just being let out, let out of jail. They get a slap on their wrist. There's no penalty. And so why do I believe in eternal punishment? Is the same way I believe in eternal life. Well, How else does God motivate people? What else? The fear of the Lord. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. There are elements of the church world that don't believe in hell. They don't believe in eternal punishment because they say, how can a loving God allow that to happen? I say, how can a loving God not allow there to be a hell? Because if you had a judge, I want to hit close to home. If you had a child who was, and there may be children here, um, I'll be careful. If you had something happen to somebody that you loved and the person went to prison, maybe, and then the judge just decides, I'm going to let him out again. I'm going to let him out again. How many of you fathers or mothers would be happy about that, to know that that person who uh, injured your family member would be just walking free? You say, you know what, that judge is corrupt, that judge is wicked, and that judge needs to follow through with the law because there needs to be penalty for the law. If there is no penalty, people are just going to go lawlessness. They're just going to throw off all restraint, as we see happening in our cities right now. Daniel Webster, he says the most sobering, somebody asked him, what was the most sobering thought to ever enter your mind? He said, the most sobering thought to ever enter my mind was my personal accountability to God. Daniel Webster, a very learned scholar. The guy, I mean, he, our, our education pales in comparison to his. What is the most sobering thought that has ever crossed your mind, Daniel Webster, is my personal accountability to God. Paul the Apostle encouraged the Thessalonian church to take refuge, to find hope in knowing that God is not overlooking the deeds of the wicked, that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those who were troubling them. There was coming a day when Jesus was coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, one of his most famous sermons, by the way, if my memory serves me right, he read his sermon. His most famous sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was such a vivid depiction of sinners hanging by a thread over the precipice of hell that people were literally shrieking and crying out because the reality of the judgment that they faced had gripped their hearts so strongly that it led to a mighty revival, a reformation, a repentance, because they realized, just like Daniel Webster, the most sobering thought that enters my mind is, I am going to stand and give a personal account of my life to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 13, verse 40. Matthew chapter 13, verse 40 says, Therefore, as the tares, the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. 
the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, all those who practice iniquity, lawlessness, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, the separating of the sheep and the goats. Most of you know this. I will encourage you to read verse 31 through 46, but I am going to read Matthew 25, and I'm going to read verse 41. This is his pronouncement to the goats. Then shall he also say to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they shall answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, or sick, or in prison, did not minister unto you? Then he shall answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Eternal life, eternal punishment. There are those who believe in annihilationism. They believe that, okay, they believe that, okay, I, I can agree that Hitler and some horrible sinner is not going to get to heaven, but there's no, no value in God punishing that unrighteous person for eternity. So what God is simply going to do is he's simply going to destroy them, annihilate them, and they will cease to exist and I want to tell you, that is not the doctrine of the Bible regarding judgment, eternity, eternal life, and eternal hell. That would not be a punishment for some. I don't think that would be a punishment. You think about Hitler, six million Jews plus, and you think of all the atrocities that he committed. Would it be just in your eyes if he were simply, his punishment was to die and then cease to exist? That's it. You're done. I think it would be much like today what we see in Portland and Seattle and different cities. If there's no penalty, no worry, no fear of God that I'm going to have to stand and give an account, you know what? If I'm just going to cease to exist, hey, why not eat and drink and sleep? But for today we live and tomorrow we die. I'm just going to live it up and do whatever I want to do because there's no fear of God. There are degrees of punishment and degrees of reward. In Luke chapter 13, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12, actually, Luke chapter 12, verse 41 through 48. I want to tell you before I read this that I, I said this a year or two ago. that the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment is probably one of the most offensive doctrines that there is to the world, that if we truly believe it and truly believe it and hold on to that, it is one of the most offensive doctrines to this world. It chafes against everything. They just they want nothing to do with that. Let's talk about a God of love, please, Oprah. Oh, she'll talk about a God of love. But to hold on to biblical Christianity and to say, you know what? Jesus died for you. He loves you. But you're going to give an account for your life for every decision, every word, every thought, every deed, every attitude, every motive, every single thing that you have ever done. It was incomprehensible before computers think, How's, I mean, how does God keep an account well, if he can hold the whole library of commerce on a little disc the size of a thumbnail, I think God can hold every every video. He's got a live stream video of our life from birth until we breathe our last and final breath. He's got a record of everything that we have ever, ever, ever done, including the lost, everybody. And it would be unjust for God to allow us to live this life and to say, you know what? Let's just pretend it all didn't happen. No big deal. Luke chapter 13. Is that where we're at? Luke chapter 13, and we are going to be 12. I'm sorry. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 45. But if that servant shall say in his heart, my Lord is delaying his coming, and he shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he does not look for him and in an hour when he is not aware, and he will cut him asunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself neither did according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Verse 47, the one who knew his Lord's will, did not prepare himself, neither did according to his will, will be beaten with many stripes, The one who knew not, but yet still did things that were worthy, will be beaten with few stripes. There's degrees of punishment. There's degrees of reward. Some people say all sin's the same. No, all sin is not the same. One sin can send a person to hell. That's what Adam and Eve did. Have you ever thought about this? They partook of a fruit. God says, don't touch it. The moment you touch it, you're going to die. I had this thought when I was younger, like, God, what's the big deal? They just took a piece of fruit. I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, it's just fruit. It looked delicious. They were hungry, maybe. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't that God consigned all humanity to being lost and in death and in sin because they just, you know, they just wanted a piece of fruit. What's the big deal? No, the big deal was authority, and the big deal was rebellion. The big deal was they set themselves up over God to say, I don't care what you have to say, God. I'm going to make up my own rules. I know that you said don't eat it, don't touch it, but Lord, I'm going to do it anyways. And because of that sin, all, all, we're all born into sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this doctrine of the judgment to come was very important to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 29. If we never share about this doctrine or if we negate it, ignore it, minimize it, we are diluting the power of the gospel. You've got that lemonade, that, that powdery lemonade, country time lemonade, and you've got the power of the gospel. If we don't, if we dilute it, there's no power in it. Acts chapter 17, verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead like unto silver, gold, or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God overlooked or winked at. But now he is commanding everyone everywhere to repent. Why? Verse 31. Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Paul the Apostle was exhorting them to repentance. Why? Because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 24, verse 24. Acts 24, verse 24. Paul the Apostle is speaking before a guy named Felix. And if Paul were to compromise his convictions and faith in order to get out of prison. He could have done so at this time, but he chose not to. Acts 24, verse 24, After certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come, Felix trembled. And answered, go away for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for you. He had hoped that money should have been given to him so that Paul could have been set free. When Paul stood before Felix, did he share about the love of God? Quite possibly. Did he share, hey, Felix, I want to tell you that God loves you and he's got a wonderful plan for your life if you just follow after Jesus. That may have been the start. But here he's standing before somebody in authority who has the authority to set him free. And it says, and Paul reasoned with him of righteousness, God's expectation. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And if you expect to get to heaven, unless you measure up to his standard, uh, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. He reasoned number two of temperance, self-control. 
I would venture to say Felix was not known to be a man of self-control. I would venture to say that Felix probably, he personified the culture of our time of just whatever you want to do. If it feels good, just do it. And he says, Felix, God has a righteous requirement for you. And if you don't meet that requirement, you ain't getting to heaven. God has a requirement for temperance. He has given you gifts and abilities and a calling. He has placed you where you're at. You're going to give an account for what you have done with what you have. And then he spoke about the judgment to come. What would cause a man like Felix to tremble? Jesus loves you, Felix. You know, it's kind of a good idea. You might want to repent and accept him into your heart, you know. Then you can go to heaven. He's going to bless you and just give you so many wonderful things. And just, I mean, life is just great when you follow Jesus, Felix. I'm being kind of sarcastic now. That's how we do evangelism in some sense. I'm like, God, forgive me. He's like, Felix, there's a man named Jesus who is the son of the living God. He is the righteous one who took our place. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can never follow after that standard of righteousness, but he is willing to offer you his righteousness on condition of repentance, that you must turn from your life of sin. I was reading Finney again this morning a little bit, and he's, he's a powerful preacher, by the way. He doesn't mince any words. Is it possible for God to forgive somebody if they don't, if it's like a half-hearted repentance? No. Is it possible for God to forgive a sinner if they're holding on to sin willfully in their heart, but they're, they're asking to forgive him for, well, forgive me for this and that, but I'm just going to hold on to this? No. It's a sham. It's either all or nothing. Either serve God or you serve mammon. Either following after light or you're following after darkness. Well, I'm in process. I'm learning how to follow after Jesus. We all are, I understand. But so long as sin is reigning on the throne of your heart, you may have said some words, but there's never been genuine repentance. Until self is taken off of the throne completely. Lord, I surrender all to you. I'm not holding on to anything of me anymore. It's not been genuine repentance. So he reasoned with Felix of righteousness temperance, and the judgment to come. I want you to imagine the most wicked politician that you could today, and don't say their name at this moment, and imagine what kind of preaching would cause them to tremble before Almighty God and say, hey, leave for right now. I can't hear this anymore. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. It's because the Holy Spirit was trying to get a hold of his heart. And it wasn't the shallow wishy-washy, diluted preaching, diluting the concentrated, powerful word of God that said, you know what? I fear Almighty God. And there is lawlessness in this land. And there is coming a day that unless people repent and believe this gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is coming with his mighty angels in flaming vengeance taking vengeance on those who do not know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the wheat and the tares, he's going to gather the tares, all those that offend, all those who are practicing lawlessness, those angels. By the way, God's angels are not these, um, remember those precious moment figurines? Women, grandmothers in here would remember precious moments. God's angels are not precious moments figurines, these cartoon-looking characters. God's angels, any time they truly showed up in the Bible, the most righteous person was on their face thinking they were about ready to die. When his angels come at the end of human history, and I won't grab somebody in here, I want to ask you, who is he going to grab? Is that angel going to grab you? I pray not. But see, the Lord knows the deeds of the heart. He knows everything that we're doing. And if we're not truly serving Jesus Christ, if we are truly just living for ourselves instead, if we are practicing lawlessness, it says those mighty angels are going to come and grab them by the nap of the neck, so to say, and they're going to cast them into that lake of fire. This is old-fashioned preaching. I'm not even doing it half justice. Revelations chapter 20.
before I get there, for reference, for those who write notes, 1 John 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Abide in him, so that when he appears, we will not be ashamed before him. Revelations chapter 20. Verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And finally, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Verse 5 says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. The second death will have no power. People fear death in this world. Jesus says, Fear not those who kill the body, but afterwards they have nothing more to do, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's the first death, and people are terrified of that in this world. Some people are, many people are, but that's not the worst death. There's the second death. The second death of what the Bible's talking about here is in Revelations. What does it say there in verse in verse 14, Revelations 20? And death and then hell itself was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, eternal separation for God. Forever and ever and ever. There's no let, there's no let up of it. Forever and ever and ever. Chris, forever. And just as sure as the believer is saying, oh God, this is the gift that God has promised to me, even eternal life. That just as surely as the believer holds on to that hope to say, Lord, I am holding on to as my hope, that hope of eternal life, that it will absolutely never, ever end. I cannot ignore the fact that for those who are not in Christ, there is an eternal death, eternal separation from God. What is it that will cause a nation to wake up finally? What is it that will cause the course of human history, a city even, or a family even, to stop dead in their tracks, to stop going down that pathway of sin, if it is not partly a reverential fear and awareness of knowing, if I continue down this pathway, I'm going to hell. And not just going to hell, but being cast into that lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever. I don't know how long I can go here. Forgive me. I just share my heart here. Why at this moment, by God's grace, why will I not drink? I will not drink by God's grace for one reason. I have a great fear in my heart that no drunkards will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not one. I walk down that aisle. I see that aisle. Like, I don't even want to touch this stuff. Oh, you're being too legalistic. You're just being, you know, Jesus came to set us free. Um, but if I know, I know what that did to my grandpa and grandma, my dad's mom and my dad, and I see what that does to babies, fetal alcohol syndrome, and, and uh, what that does to children who are born with a pregnant womb, a mother who's drinking. When I speak with a, a, a young man this week whose father was killed by a drunk driver when he was just one and a half years of age, I want nothing to do with it. Adultery. Why aren't you just going to go just, you know, do... No, no adulterers are going to get into heaven. Anyway, God doesn't care. I mean, yeah, God does care. He wants me happy. He wants me out of this miserable marriage. 
I need to be happy and have my needs fulfilled. That's a bunch of baloney. That's the nicest way I can put it. It'll send you to hell. I just need my needs satisfied. I was so miserable for so many years, just tormented. Get over it. Get over it. I want to ask you this question, and I want to tell you, there is a place. Uh, I could go on and on and on. I'm sorry. Repentance is a gift of God. Well, I'll just leave my spouse, and I'll repent later. And I mean, God knows my heart. Jesus, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I know this is destroying my family. Jesus, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. But in the back of my head, I won't verbalize it, but I'm going to continue to live in this adulterous relationship And now I'm a Christian. No, you're going to hell if you don't truly repent. Repentance is a gift of God. You can't just repent any old time when you think, when when I'm ready to repent, I'll repent. No, unless the Holy Spirit is drawing, Jesus says, no man comes unto the Son except the Father draw him. If the Holy Spirit's not bringing the conviction, if he is not leading you and pricking that conscience, you can't just say some empty mouth prayer, oh God, please forgive me, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to continue in this lifestyle of sin. Amen. And then the world looks at that, and they look at church and go, what a bunch of hypocrites. There's no truth to this. It's a bunch of garbage. And the church has tolerated it for so many years. No, repentance is a gift of God. Well, I just need my needs met. I need to be happy. I'm so miserable. Oh, Jesus. Revelations twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For outside of the gates of the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, whosoever loves and makes a lie. Outside the gates are those. What will change the course of individuals, even church? I'll say I don't have a whole lot of faith at this moment for some great national revival. I would like to think there could be one. But you know what? This country has been going down a course for so many years, it will take a huge, massively great awakening. We've had Christian presidents, uh, godly ones, Republicans, I don't care. We've had Republicans, we had Trump who appointed one or two Supreme Court justices. Has it changed a cotton-picking thing? Not one thing. Am I saying he's not doing anything good? No, no, he's trying to do good. But this country has been going down a pathway of sin and rebellion and anarchy, changing God's laws, throwing them out the window. What is it that will finally stop somebody? Jesus said, narrow is the gate, narrow is the way, and few there are who find it. Broad is the way and broad is the gate that leads to destruction. And many there are who go down that pathway. I need to have my needs met, so I'm just going to leave my spouse and go find somebody who I'm compatible with. I tell you what, until you repent, you're not right with God. And until you repent, if you don't find that place of repentance, you will not be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. And you will deceive yourself, and you will lie to yourself, and you will say, oh, everything's okay. You'll even go to church, and you'll even sing songs, and you'll even open your Bible. And you will deceive yourself, flattering yourself, saying, I'm okay. It's going to be okay. Jesus loves me. This I know. Yeah. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments too. If you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. That's the truth. Ain't no doubt. Church, this is a fearful thing. I see the condition of our nation. I see what's happening. Two things I want to leave with you. Many things, actually. Number one, it's been happening for thousands of years. Don't let your heart be troubled in the sense of allowing yourself to get wrapped up in the paranoia, the fear, anxiety, and just reading and just being all troubled and fretting over all the corruption. It has always been there. It has always been there. Just now we have the Internet. Now we have more things that you can actually read about it. And sadly, your heart gets all in turmoil about that, realizing, whoa, Lord, it's always been there. You're just shining your light on it. I used to pray, Lord, shine your light on the darkness. Expose what's hidden. Now I'm like, oh, God, I, I'm sorry. 
Sometimes I'd rather not know and just let you deal with it at the end of history, so to say. Don't fret. But what do we need to hold on to? Because, church, I don't want you to receive a diluted gospel. There will be somebody in here that you're going to have country time lemonade or you're going to have orange juice. You're going to have something that's concentrated that you have to add water to. And I pray every time from now on when you do that, you have your iced tea, that you think of the potency of the power of God's word, that you can have it in its undiluted form. And if you take it in its undiluted form, it'll bring power into your life, strength into your life, courage into your life, faith into your life. It brings reality into your life. But if we dilute the word of God by ignoring it, eh, you know, God just loves everybody. I don't understand how even adulterers are going to get to heaven. I mean, they're singing on the platform of the church, but you know what? No, it's not Christianity. No. Jesus said, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name done many wonderful works in your name, even cast out devils. And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, all you who work lawlessness. He goes on to say that those who hear my word, those who do my word, those who apply my word in its undiluted form, and they allow my word to strengthen their faith, and they live in my word. They follow my word. They are likened unto a man who has built his house on the firm foundation on the rock. The rains will come, the storms will come, the, the hurricanes will come, so to say, and it will beat on that house, but that house will stand. Why? Because it is founded on a rock. Church, hold on to God's word. It is a sure foundation. The doctrine of eternal punishment, the coming judgment to come, is absolutely critical for us to know and to read about, to understand the best that we can, understand the best way that we can. Why? Because when you see all the anarchy and the chaos that is trying to take over this world, it is the only thing that will bring hope and stability in your soul. To realize Jesus, even if they were to kill me, I'm going to take to heart your words. Don't fear those who kill the body, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. On this rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. If you are living in sin this morning, I want to tell you today is the day of salvation. If you shrug off this message, I want to tell you in closing, every time you shrug off a message like this, your heart gets a little bit more hard. Every time that you shrug off repentance and put it off and delay it like Felix, go away, preacher. End this service. I just want to go away. And when I have a convenient time, I'll repent. There's no reference of Felix ever repenting. Today is the day that you need to come to this altar And not just to an altar. You need to reform your life and say, Lord, I'm going to lay the axe to the root of the tree. I'm not going to deal with just the surface issues, the convenient issues. Well, okay, I need to stop doing drugs, I guess. It's not really good for me, but I'm going to keep selfishness on the throne of my heart and and follow Jesus too. No, it doesn't work that way. No, you don't throw away and lay the axe to the root of the convenient sins. You say, Lord, I want the axe laid to the root of my pride, my selfishness, and my arrogance, my haughtiness. And, Lord, I want to be humbled before Almighty God, for the humbled will be lifted up. And, Lord, I want to be born again by your Spirit. Let's all stand together, please. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, forgive me for any and every time that I have diluted your word, either by ignoring it, not preaching on it, not sharing it. God, I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I ask that you would cause us to have a great love for your word in its purest form possible, that we would take it at face value as it is. Lord, may we see that Christianity does not ignore the ugliness of this world. It doesn't sweep it under the rug and, and say, all right, we'll just say this simple prayer and, and live your lifestyle of selfishness, and you'll go to heaven. Lord, that's a bunch of garbage. 
Lord, I pray that you would raise up a church that will raise up in holiness and righteousness. And Lord, I pray, I I say, not self-righteousness, but Lord, a church that would raise up in your righteousness, in your holiness, in your obedience. Lord, that we would arise and shine for your light is come. Lord, that we would let others see the good works through us, Lord, that they would glorify our Father in heaven. Lord, that you would raise up a church that is without spot or without wrinkle, that would no longer be the scandal of the world, but instead would be the light to the nations. Lord, that you would raise up a church and a group of people that would say, in spite of the anarchy and chaos, no, I'm not going to pretend it's not there and all that, no. Lord, I'm going to stand on the living word of God and stand for your truth in Jesus' name. With every eye closed and heads bowed this morning, Today is your day. I encourage you last again, don't brush this off. And if you know in your heart of hearts that I'm a fake, I'm a phony, I may have made a profession of faith, but I am not living that faith out. And this morning, I need to repent of living a fake Christian life. This morning, I need to repent of my hypocrisy. I have been deceiving myself, singing songs about how Jesus loves me. But all the while ignoring what he has commanded me. Well, if you love me, then then keep my commandments. Well, I'll get around to it, Lord, when it's convenient. And the Lord says, no, then you're not ready. Until you repent. If today's your day, you say, I need to repent. I want to be right with Almighty God. If that's you, anybody here, raise your hands. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Jesus, if you raised your hands, let's come on down. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's saying, Lord, no. I don't want phony baloney, Lord. I don't want to simply get rid of convenient sins, sins that are an inconvenience for me. It's kind of messing up my life, Lord. I want self off of the throne of my heart. Lord, I don't want a spiritual band-aid. I just don't want some therapeutic service, Lord, of this pastor tell me nice things. It's going to be okay, Lord. I want to confront sin and all of its ugliness and look to the cross of Jesus Christ and realize, Jesus, you gave yourself for me to deliver me from sin, out of sin, out of this evil world. Now, Lord, there is to be a dramatic change or revolution in my life that I am no longer on the throne of my life. I am no longer going to dilute the Word of God with my ideas, my opinions, my ways. No, I don't want to do that. I want your Word and all of its power in my life. Jesus. Anybody here? If you raise your hands, come on. Come on. Nothing to be ashamed of. There isn't one other. I encourage you. Jesus. And I want to talk with you at the end. We're going to close in prayer. If you raise your hands, I tell you, don't shrug this off, church. If he is calling you up and you are serving the Lord to the best of your ability, I want to tell you, church, he's calling us higher. He is calling us higher because, listen, if, if, if it's a half-hearted, lukewarm Christianity, if it's half-hearted in any way, you will not stand in this day. The only way to stand in the evil day is to stand in his righteousness. The only way to stand and to not be dismayed, the only way to stand and to not falter is to stand in his righteousness, in his truth. The righteous are bold as a lion. The fear of man brings a snare. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. Lord Jesus, you see the response of our hearts. And Lord, especially for these who say, Lord, I don't want to go halfway with you, Lord. I don't want to simply repent of the convenient sins because they've been messing up my life. Jesus, I want self off of the throne of my heart. I want to repent of my rebellion I want to repent of my ways, O God. Jesus, I want to do a 180 and look to you 
You are the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. Wash my heart clean. Cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness. Lord, I ask that you would clothe them then with your righteousness and your holiness, Lord. Empower them. Quicken them with your Holy Spirit, O God, that they would walk with you in boldness all the days of their life. Lord, for those who are responding to say, Lord, you're calling me higher, Lord. Lord, I don't want to be lukewarm. I don't want to be halfway. Lord, others may look at me and they may see, oh, that person loves Jesus. No, Lord, I want to be going all the way with you, Jesus. Jesus. Lord, I pray that your word as we close and leave this place, let it bring comfort, encouragement, strength to our heart. Lord, when we see the lawlessness around us, may we stand firm in your word. Lord, may we hold on to the truth of your word and not let it go. Lord, may we never dilute it, but may we receive it in all of its power and potency. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, I close with this truly. I do finally close, church. God forbid if you had COVID-19 and there was some medication they could give you and a doctor said, hey, I've got some medicine for you. Do you want the medicine in all of its potency or do you want them to say, but you know what? We're just going to kind of dilute it a little bit and hope that it works. How many of you would take the first choice and say, I want the stuff that's going to work? (laughs) That's the gospel, church. Take his word in all of its potency and say, Lord, just like chemotherapy, we have those in this church going through chemo. It's It's a wicked drug. It's horrible in the sense of what it does to this body. But you know what? They'll receive it because, you know what, there's a benefit for it too because it actually can take care of and get rid of that cancer. Well, Lord, if I've got a wicked thing called sin, a disease in my heart called sin, oh, Lord, the only thing that can deal, it's like the chemotherapy of God's word. And, Lord, if it's going to, or the radiation, it's going to burn that out of me, whatever, Lord. I don't want it diluted. I want the full power of your word. Lord, cause your face to shine upon your servants. Lord, may we go in your hope and your joy and your life. Lord, may we go in the clarity of your word. May we go facing the realities of this world, Lord, knowing that we do have hope and we can walk in the peace of God, knowing that Jesus, someday that trumpet's going to sound and I, your mighty angels are coming. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I pray that you have a good afternoon and we'll hope to see you again next Sunday. If you need prayer, by the way, for anything, these altars are open. If you raised your hand, I would love the opportunity to pray with you still uh, individually. God bless you.